Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably, that's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I am Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast, a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedargold. Transportation is at the centre of our economies and societies, accounting for about 64% of global oil consumption and 27% of all energy use. However, it is also central to the key challenges faced. Greenhouse gas emissions must be reduced, congestion remains an issue for cities, ports and airports, and growing populations require cheap sources of transportation. The future of transportation and its relationship to the environment has been the driving force behind a number of innovations. Electric public vehicles are increasingly being used in major cities. Swappable car batteries are being trialled and the first autonomous and zero emission ships are currently being designed by Yara and Kongsberg. But what does this all mean for consumers and households? Today's episode will examine the routes to decarbonisation for the transportation sector, what role governments should play in achieving this and how to balance the need for decarbonisation with keeping costs low for consumers. It is my pleasure to be joined by Helena Bennett and Palomar Zapata. Helena is the Senior Policy Advisor at the Green Alliance. Previously, she worked as the Sustainability Lead in PwC's Innovation Team and worked with the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Palomar is the CEO of Sustainable Transport International and leads the organization's global efforts to maximize tourism's contribution to conservation and development in order to protect destinations, preserve natural environments and improve community well-being. Thank you very much for joining me both today. How are you both doing? Doing very well, thank you, Luke. Also doing very well, thank you for having us here. Fantastic. I'd like to start by discussing the need to decarbonize transportation. What key tools should be used to help transport decarbonization? As I've already said, Innovations are really helping in that regard, but are they enough? Um, Perhaps, Palomar, you would like to start. Sure. Well, you know, in the tourism industry, the biggest contributor to your carbon footprint is typically the flight that you take. So it's typically the um, the air flight that you take will have will be the biggest contributor. And yes, of course, we do see that there is definitely innovation or a more efficiency in newer planes. We also see that there's innovation in jet fuels, that there now is opportunity to use a biofuels. However, the infrastructure in airline industry is still not yet widestream. Now there's not widestream use yet. So there's still a lot of research and innovation. And of course, you know, changing of the infrastructure in airports to be able to facilitate this. And there's also uh, concerns when it comes to, is there, there's not enough bio waste and biofuel to generate the needed biofuel for all of the airline fleet. But definitely there's more to be done in this space. And then of course, there's carbon offsetting mechanisms which help balance the carbon that you cannot reduce through the efforts of you know, innovation and streamline operations. There's also carbon offsetting is a means to neutralize the carbon that we produce when we fly to get to the destinations we want to visit. And Helena, what are your thoughts? A really good question around kind of is innovation enough, I think. And a good example is in the subsector of cars and transport. So obviously through 
innovation and quite rapid technological advancement, we've seen a really good uptake of electric vehicles, whether that be fully battery electric vehicles, which have zero emissions or plug-in hybrids. And in the UK specifically, we've now got phase-out dates for both of those within the next 15 years, which is a really, really positive step. However, we're also, we also know that having replacing our current fleet with electric vehicles still leaves quite a bit of emissions in in this subsector so it needs to kind of that innovation needs to be alongside other policies which help reduce the amount of traffic on the road so through policies for example the government potentially introducing road pricing or big shift to public transport and investment in walking and cycling infrastructure to enable people to take shorter journeys through more sustainable means and, and lower carbon transport. So I think innovation is going to be really key across the different subsectors of transport, but it's we've got to be really conscious that they have to go hand in hand with policies that help us switch to the most sustainable options possible. And the same is true for the aviation industry, as, as Paolo mentioned. We are seeing innovations in the types of sustainable aviation fuels available. They're not really where they need to be yet to call themselves zero carbon or zero emissions. So alongside that, in the meantime, we need to make sure we're doing the right things and introducing the right policies to encourage a shift towards more sustainable options like, for example, rail instead of just choosing flying. So innovation on its own, no, I don't think it is enough, but it is a very good start and it helps kind of boost the initial move towards low carbon transport. So in, in, in the UK, we kind of got increasingly a number of uh, emission zero areas and cities. Birmingham has just now introduced one or is, is about to and London obviously has one. Um, is that the sort of policy we should be looking to implement more of? Um, simply because the number, the impact it has on consumers and businesses is so detrimental as well. Um, Helena, what do you think? I think it's it's a good start. I also think it is really dependent on where you are. If you're living in a very rural area and don't have access to good public transport links, or you live far away enough that walking or cycling isn't an option, then the idea of not being able to drive is very isolating and, and not very fair on some people. And similarly, the other way around in areas like London, where there are lots of public transport options, I do think they're good ideas, partly to encourage uh, fewer cars on the road. So that also helps with, you know, congestion, air pollution, getting people walking. So it's good for well-being. But it then also does help with encouraging people onto public transport. And like I said, in cities like London, the public transport links are very, very good. So I think with the same with all of these kind of more, as we would call them, restrictive policies, it really depends on, on where you are and who will be impacted by them. Thank you. So part of the UK government's plan to create a low emission infrastructure is HS2, which is proven not to just be uh, environmentally unfriendly, if you will, but also staggeringly expensive. Are governments well positioned to be the driving forces behind low carbon and environmentally orientated transportation infrastructure? Panama, would you like to start? As far as um, government's role, I actually, you know, was thinking about, you know, Barcelona as, a, as an example, you know, as I was listening Helen talk about the different policies that government can do. And I think Barcelona is definitely stepping in the right direction. I've been living here for over 15 years, and I've really seen how the infrastructure when it comes to bike lanes has improved greatly. They've basically all the entire city is, is bikeable. The mass transportation as well is all electric. 
and so we have hybrid buses and electric buses in public transportation. And also even of recent years, when it comes to reducing the amount of car traffic, you know, on the streets, they've also done a lot. They closed down streets, they narrowed them, they made more community spaces. So you see now, you know, people, family and children um, utilizing, you know, the middle of what used to be just intersections. And now you have a lot less traffic and that is creates a lot less pollution and creates a much more livable and friendly city. So I think that as an example, I think Barcelona has definitely stepped up and created a lot of these policies that really drive a reduction of the use of you know, traditional transportation in, in cars and, and put people more on, in a walkable, livable city. In kind of regards to the, the larger, more national scale projects such as HS2, do you think the government's local or national government should be the driving force behind those sorts of projects? As you said, you know, kind of in Barcelona, the authorities have effectively promoted low emission systems and kind of change behavioral patterns towards it. But when it comes to like, you know, building larger railroads or something like that, do you think it should be down to government led projects? I definitely think that it should be only government-led projects because there's a lot of um, to take into consideration. Not only is the energy infrastructure, but as far as I understand, which you know I don't know so much about HS2, but as far as you know what I am able to gather is that it also is going to affect greener areas. So we're talking about parks, we're talking about wildlife impact on the wildlife and ecosystems, and I think that all of that needs to be got in a government and a policy level and in a more balancing of what the positive impacts, but what the negative impacts will be. So I think it's a great opportunity to basically mobilize in low carbon emissions, but what are the risks when it comes to the environment and what are the mitigation actions? And I think that definitely needs to come from government. And Helena, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I totally agree with uh, Palomar about that point about needing to look at the kind of risks of what these big infrastructure projects could pose. So in the UK specifically and, and across most countries, rail is a really key way to promote connectivity between different places specifically in you know the UK we're not a huge country so flying from one end to the other doesn't make sense if we can do it on a train which we could do if we expanded rail network and it was electrified and so on but we do need to make sure that climate and nature are addressed simultaneously and any large infrastructure project needs to be able to maximize both benefits to climate and benefits to the natural environment. So projects that are degrading ancient woodlands and areas which we uh, should be considering as protected areas isn't necessarily maximising the benefits to nature and the natural environment. In terms of the um, local and national side of things, obviously infrastructure projects that span multiple parts of a country need to be considered at a national level, but I do think there's opportunity for more connect between how those projects impact local areas and what the opinions of those local constituents are and that's obviously been seen really clearly in the, the local by-election in Cheshire and Amersham in the UK and the residents displeasure with the impact that HS2 is having on their local area so I do think there's definitely more opportunity for connect between the kind of local and national levels and and what big infrastructure means for people on the ground. Yeah, I think that kind of disconnect has led to a number of unintended consequences as you've kind of mentioned I think it was about 108 ancient woodlands are now kind of being negatively affected by HS2 in particular. But there's also a, a certain risk of politicization of infrastructure projects and, you know, and government effectively wanting to save face by continuing to do a project or kind of embark on a project, even though it might not seem like the best idea, which in my personal view, HS2 is case in point. Is that kind of a risk elsewhere as well, Palomar, do you think? 
Well, you know, I actually reminded of the AVE, which is the fast train here in Spain that goes from Barcelona to, to Madrid. Um, and I think also from Valencia to, to Madrid. So it's definitely helped, you know, reduce the amount of flights. Um, so you can really, really easily go from Barcelona to Madrid in, in very, very fast. But the issue here has been the Sagrada Familia. So there's more of a cultural iconic infrastructure that could have been affected by the um, extension of the AVE to go into inside to, in the city. So right now it takes you to a certain place, but it doesn't go all the way inside underneath the city because it could actually be a, a problem um, for the Sagrada Familia, which is, again, a heritage site. So there's been a lot of issues here, and the communities have also spoken up. And so, yes, it can become politicized, and, and, and this is something that's been seen here. And um, because of that, it was never, this particular project was not completed. So the AVE does not go underneath the, the Sagrada Familia in this case because of the issues. I'd kind of like, now like to turn to... Um... The effects on consumers. So that, that's something we haven't yet talked about and, and their kind of role and position in the changing nature of transportation. How do we balance the need for low carbon transportation with the demands for more travel by people, especially as we come out of this pandemic? Pamela, would you like to start, especially in kind of regards to tourism and international travel? Uh, certainly. I mean, of course, I mean, this has been the worst year. 2020 was the worst year in history of tourism dynamics of the tourism dynamics has seen a halt in tourism, you know, as never seen before. And of course, we've seen the reduction of carbon emissions, I think about 6% was the latest that I saw in 2020. But then that very quickly came back because it wasn't intentional, you know, as you mentioned, it wasn't intentional. And now we're going to see, you know, everyone go back uh, to potentially the levels that they were and continue growing in the levels that they that they were. And I think it's a wake up call for all of us, you know, to be more intentional and to really evaluate the need to travel as, as much as we did, especially in the corporate arena. You know, we've seen the likes of other means of being able to, to conduct business through uh, the Zoom created a humongous boom. And so I think that is, is a chance for consumers to really evaluate both in you know, corporate travel, even shipping, and of course, leisure travel as well. So there's a lot of ways that travelers can change their behaviors to be more sustainable and to actually produce less footprint. So, you know, we, we like to put out a lot of information to really give travelers the means and the tools to make more responsible choices. And I think is definitely a consumer needs to be involved and uh, they need to make conscious choices. And there is a trend towards, you know, people are, are waking up and are becoming more conscious, but it's not fast enough. There's still, you still have mainstream mass tourism. And that is something that, you know, we've seen these destinations like Venice, like Barcelona, have that mass tourism really regenerate itself, you know, and have more community life. And so so what we really want to see is less of going back to this mass tourism and uh, overconsumption of these destinations and basically level things out. So the consumers definitely have a choice and can have an influence on being more responsible when it comes to, again, the choices that we make and the, not only the transportation choices, but how, many, how much time, how many travels we do in a year, for example. And Helena, would you agree with that or...? Yeah, pretty much exactly. I, I definitely agree about the, the business side of things. We've seen a whole different way of working in the past year. Um, and so much of travel, especially aviation, is, is due to business travel. Um, I used to fly myself for work every every week to Glasgow, to Copenhagen, to various different places for, for long periods of time. And now looking back on it, I can't I can't believe I used to do that. And I I you know have been working remotely for a year now and it's going as smoothly as it would have if 
if we were there in person almost but but in terms of the kind of consumer side of things I think there's again two sides to the coin and one of those is making sure that all options available to people are as sustainable as they can be so regardless of the choice they make it's a as low carbon option as possible but there is of course also a, a bit of an education piece around you know as as Palma said around getting people to understand what the impact of their choices is and I think even just this year and last year we've seen in the UK the amount of, of domestic tourism has rocketed and that's primarily been because people haven't been able to travel elsewhere but I actually think a lot of people have learned they don't need to jump on a plane and and fly for five hours to have a nice holiday you can do that quite locally and I'm not suggesting that we never fly again that's that's you know as much as we need to reduce the amount we're traveling that's not really a a sensible thing to say but I do think giving people the opportunity to do things more locally and and to take trains, you know, to I traveled to the south of France on a train a couple of years ago when I usually would have flown. And that was a really lovely experience. Just letting people know there are other options out there that are more sustainable, have less impact and can be a bit nicer as well. If you're getting a train through the French countryside, it was really delightful. <laughs> oh, yeah. if, I, if I may add, um, I totally agree with you, Elena. Like I have not traveled in a year and I don't know how I used to live before, <laughs> how I used to travel. <laughs> so much it was incredible I was constantly on a plane and it has been refreshing right to be you know there's always a silver lining to things but when it comes to also you know travel I mean what we like to you know recommend is instead of doing a lot of travel during the year yes enjoy your local you know environment and your local uh, cities but once you do one trip you know do that one trip a year tourism boomed back then in the 80s you used to do one large or one far away trip and really enjoy that place and there's there are ways to make this more sustainable like you said with the choices that that you have in your hand but if you go and you do slow travel and you go to that one far away place and you plan it really well and instead of traveling it to small city breaks for example you do that one long haul trip and the reason why I'm saying that is because there's a lot of destinations that are these remote destinations that are suffering that used to rely on 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 tourism that have been suffering now and so it's not a means of not going there again but actually going there and being more responsible and a more maybe staying longer and doing more slow foods and so slow travel and really leaving a positive you know mark behind yeah i i think that that, that can be the case for many people indeed but um for, for people who have like their families spread around you know, most of europe uh, myself in the case my family live either in italy and romania you know those kind of regular trips are something that is, is almost kind of a necessity as, as as you know as so certainly as we come out of lockdown is and we are allowed to i know that are we kind of traveling fairly regularly and doing that sort of thing but that's that's kind of a, a, a not not tourism in itself but it's certainly a um, travel and transportation i think it's worth we, we kind of both talked about the more tourism side of things there but yeah. it is worth also talking about the um, you know, daily commutes and people going and doing their food shopping and things. And, and I think a similar rule applies to an extent where, um, you know, make sure that the low carbon option is as available to people as reasonably possible, especially in, you know, poorer communities or communities that really don't have any access to, to much public transport. There is a, still also that education piece around, you know, have you considered getting a bus to do your shopping instead of driving and and what can policy do to make those options as easy and as cheap as possible for people so i think that 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 rule kind of applies to an extent at the smaller 
more local and short distance scale as well. Yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to tell you, um, kind of turn to now is kind of the use of electric vehicles and that side of things and how do we, you know, for, for those on kind of lower income households or who live in low income households, how do we kind of balance out that need for decarbonisation and, you know, going green with our transportation with, you know, effectively not being able to afford electric green vehicles or, or, or that sort of thing. So perhaps, Helena, would you like to start? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of things there. One is around the, the second-hand market for electric vehicles, or even the third or fourth-hand market. And, and electric vehicles haven't really existed en masse enough for that market to be big enough that people can can use it yet. So that's kind of one thing going forward. And, uh, and also that you know, there are ways to, to introduce subsidies for people on lower incomes to have access to electric vehicles but there's also other other ways of doing things things that we don't really talk about very much like you know car sharing clubs or or car rides and it kind of also goes back to the point of actually if you if you plan an urban or even a rural area well enough you can have it as a you know low traffic neighborhood that doesn't need to rely on vehicles whether they be petrol and diesel or electric if you if you plan a town or or a city and prioritize walking and cycling and buses and trains actually those the the idea of an electric vehicle suddenly doesn't become necessary so so there's a couple of things that can be done to make evs more accessible for people that do need them but there are also things that can be done which mean which mean you don't need the access to that electric vehicle you know i i live in london and lots of my friends live in london and don't have cars and we don't need cars really here to to live our daily lives and the public transport is is affordable enough that people can use it every day and and not be out of pocket so so it's kind of again it kind of depends where you are and and what um is available to you outside of electric vehicles yeah and palomar yeah no so i i agree with with all that and um but i was just you know thinking about i mean at least you know in developed nations there are you know more options now and becoming more accessible but i'm just thinking about developing nations you know there is not a lot of options there and there's a lot of pollution comes to a you know the carbon emissions of um of vehicles and so they're not i guess transforming fast enough, you know, as we would need to, because of course we're all in this one planet, you know, together. Um, and so I think there's a lot more uh, to be done, you know, to really not only, you know, change the accessibility to low carbon you know, transportation in developed nations, but also more to do in developing nations. Because I've seen that, you know, uh, you know, with my again with my travels my work in and my heritage as well i've seen you know these nations really start to become more developed you know especially tourism helps them become more developed and you start seeing now families with two to three cars and a lot more traffic congestions so there's a lot more to be done in in to really influence you know transportation sector worldwide thank you and 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 finally um without sounding too you know my, my jokes are absolutely appalling, but um, what, what do you think is coming down the tracks for transport, Helena? <laughs> I guess it d- depends how far in advance you're looking. Um, we've already seen some quite cool tech, you know, like last mile drones being used by organisations like Amazon and Uber. My my old job, we, we used to talk about the kind of much further future tech side of things. So from a transport point of view, you know, little electric pods that are autonomous and driving around cities and you can just sit in there and have a meeting and there's a little coffee machine that does coffee for you <laughs> you can step out into into a park for your next meeting and 
and you know mini drones that fly around that can hold people in and, and that kind of thing but I think in the in the near term definitely the kind of better more efficient electric vehicles and battery electric vehicles is going to be really key in helping us decarbonize the electrification of railways and the development of synthetic fuels for aviation is I think is going to be a really key one for getting that sector down to zero emissions so that's more kind of short term but it's fun thinking about the long term as well sometimes <laughs> there's a reason i didn't go into comedy um but palomar what are your thoughts <laughs> no i was actually just imagining that world that you know as helena was talking and it's uh, yeah fantastic and, and futuristic and it, it would be amazing i don't know if you're going to be live live to to see it but um i think more in the you know short medium to to term uh, definitely a lot more innovation and in, in the whole biofuel sector and that's going to because we're talking because I'm thinking more of those long term or a longer haul for shipping you know for for big big loads such as you know ocean shipment and, and trucks and long haul flights all of those you know cannot be electrified no um, so we do need more innovation in that biofuel space to find that balance you know to create it. and then of course the infrastructure in itself to really change over I think that's what's going to take us a lot more to really be able to change you know Know, on all our operations, you know, in, in the airports, in the ports, to really have, you know, the infrastructure change to provide for those, you know, new biofuels, you know, so the production of biofuels, and then, you know, the, the building of the the actual uh, planes and ships that we're going to use them. And then, of course, the infrastructure in itself. I think that's what's going to take us, you know, longer, but is really where we, you know, where we need to go in, in these larger, I think the, the smaller uh, format, you know, for consumption for, um, you know, families uh, and individuals, I think it's, uh, it's already advanced quite a lot. And, and of course, there's still need more to go to make it more mainstream. And of course, we need also infrastructure to be able to, we're going to be going, you know, on, on a trips in a, in a hybrid, you know, or electric car, we need to have that infrastructure, which of course, again, will, will take time. So I think that's where really the efforts uh, need to go and where I see the future in order for us to really be able to have more carbon neutral transportation. But it's going to be very interesting to watch over the next 5, 10, 25 years, how transportation changes and what innovations come out to uh, tackle the big climate change challenges that we all face. But uh, thank you very much both for joining me. Paloma, where can we learn more about your work? Yes, if you visit sustainabletravelinternational.org, that's our website. And uh, we are also on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on our social media, Facebook. You can find out more information about uh, our work. And we do uh, do carbon offsetting options. So we offer carbon offsetting options for both industry. So not only, you know, corporate travel, from corporate travel to shipping to tour operators and airlines, as well as for individuals. And Helena. Uh, well, Green Alliance has a plethora of research and, and reports and interesting things on a, on a blog. Search Green Alliance online. I uh, also do some educational climate content on Instagram. My handle is Earth by Helena. And yeah, thanks very much for having us. It's been a great chat. No, thank you very much for joining me. This has been a uh, fantastic conversation. And if you'd like to learn more about the British Conservation Alliance's work, do follow us at www.bca.eco or on the Twitter handle at bca underscore eco. Thank you again, Palomar and Helena. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.